0: Hello and welcome to the podcast Buffy and the Art of Story Season 4. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. Today we are talking about Season 4, Episode 12, A New Man, where Ethan Rain returns to Sunnydale, causing a transformation, personal and literal, for... Giles. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of Writing As a Second Career.com. If you enjoy supernatural thrillers or traditional detective novels with smart female protagonists, you can try out the first book in each of my two series free at lisalilly.com slash free. As to a new man, in particular, I'll talk about the different ways we can see this story depending whose perspective we're focusing on, character questions for Giles, including has he been spending too much time with the kids, how props and objects influence the story, set tone, and show the character's emotions, as well as the layers to this story that read differently depending where you you are in your own life, which to me is the mark of a great story. There will be no spoilers except at the end when I talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. A New Man originally aired on January twenty fifth, 2000. It was directed by Michael Gershman and written by Jane Aspenson. We start with opening conflict. That's the conflict that is there to draw the viewer into the story. Buffy and Riley are alone in Buffy's dorm room, on Buffy's bed, kissing. So things are going well since the end of Doomed. Riley asks Buffy if she's expecting anyone, and she says no, Willow is at the science lab all night. But Willow barges in and tells them something burst into the rec room. Riley asks if it's a vampire, and Willow says vampires don't breathe fire. The three of them head for the rec room together, but Riley splits off to enter another way. Buffy has her steak ready, but she tells Willow they need to make this fast. She has better things to do tonight than kill. At 59 seconds in, Buffy and Willow enter, and a bunch of people yell surprise. A quick callback to the first Buffy birthday episode, which was called Surprise. Buffy hides her steak riley bursts in the side door with a crossbow which he quickly drops to his side willow guesses that buffy won't be killing anything tonight and buffy says don't be so sure giving her a look and so much is established in that 59 seconds the buffy riley romance what stage they're at that it's buffy's birthday and that she and riley both fight demons we cut to the credits At 2 minutes, 8 seconds in, we're back. Giles has a piece of cake in one hand. He is talking about his college days while Anya plays with the figures on the foosball table. She interrupts Giles to say to Xander, I'm bored. Let's eat. Xander says, Anya, we talked about this. So Anya takes a breath, turns to look at Giles and says, I'm sorry, that was rude. Please continue your story. Hopefully it involves Triacle the headmaster. And Giles says, no need. Anya walks off, and Xander gives Giles an apologetic look and follows her. We fade into Giles sitting along the wall. Willow joins him, brings him more cake, and he comments on all the new faces at the party. Buffy rushes over at that moment with Riley. Giles hugs her, wishes her happy birthday, but she interrupts him to introduce Riley as her boyfriend. Riley calls him Mr. Giles and asks if he helped plan the party, and it's quite a surprise. And Giles says, the first of many. Um, been dating long? Before Riley can answer, Buffy says Giles was the librarian at her high school. Giles jokes that he misses it sometimes, and Riley asks if he's retired Giles is not thrilled, and he stumbles through an explanation about being between projects. I really feel for Giles. There was a time in my 20s when I couldn't work because I had a repetitive stress injury. I had been doing secretarial work to support myself while I wrote novels, which was not paying me anything. And I just dreaded running into anyone who said, oh, what are you doing these days? Because mostly what I was doing was feeling depressed and lying on my parents' couch. Giles not lying on his parents' couch, but clearly feeling uncomfortable and at loose ends. Buffy tells Riley to go get Giles some cake and then apologizes, saying Riley was just nervous. I love the use of the cake here. We have Giles with a piece in the beginning. Willow brings him one. I'm not quite sure what happens to that one because he had it in his hands when Buffy and Riley approached. But I backed up to see and he shakes hands and we don't see him pass that cake off to anyone, but he has both hands free. But now Buffy is sending Riley to get cake again. And I feel like it's such a great metaphor for Giles not knowing how he fits at this party. So there's nothing to do but have punch and eat cake and all the characters in a way are emphasizing without meaning to his peripheral role in all of this by making sure he has cake all the time although here I think Buffy just wants to send Riley away so she can talk alone to Giles. She now says how nice it is to have everyone together for her birthday and goes on, Of course, you could smash in all my toes with a hammer and it would still be the bestest Buffy birthday bash in a big, long while. A little more exposition there about how badly her birthdays go and foreshadowing for the episode Giles tells her Willow and Xander did most of the planning but he's not sure he would have done a surprise party. Buffy has enough things jumping out at her in the dark and this is a nice bid by Giles for some connection with Buffy. He is looking for solidarity with her here. Instead we get more conflict And a little more backstory and foreshadowing for the episode all in this short exchange because Buffy responds, Professor Walsh says, Adrenaline is like exercise but without the exorbitant gym fees. Giles says, Very witty. Buffy says, You should meet her. She's absolutely the smartest person I've ever met. And poor Giles responds, perhaps we should have invited Professor Walsh to the party. And then it gets worse for Giles because Buffy says, oh, no, I mean, she's like 40. She's got better things to do than hang out with a bunch of kids. And Riley comes up at that moment and says, here you go, sir, and hands him the cake. Oh, my heart just breaks for Giles. And that is a a great example, too, of the dialogue just Escalating because each time Buffy has said something that is cutting for Giles without realizing it, it then gets worse in her next comment. I see this whole exchange as the story spark or inciting incident for our plot. Usually that comes about 10% through any story, it gets the main plot rolling. What's really fascinating to me here is. It seems like it's setting off a subplot perhaps about Giles dealing with life now that he's no longer the librarian or Buffy's official watcher and Buffy is in college, but it also sets off the main plot because this is the exchange that puts Giles in an emotional place where he lets down his guard later with Ethan Rain, who then takes advantage of that. This exchange also highlights the metaphor. And so often this season, I've I found the metaphors less compelling than they typically are in Buffy or perhaps less clear. But this one is very clear. Giles as the parent whose child is turning into an adult and has gone away to college also for the parent who is no longer in that position, not just of authority, but as the expert. Because it's so easy, especially at that age, to take the pluses about your parents for granted. And this is what Buffy does here when she offhandedly says, oh, Professor Walsh is the smartest person I've ever met. And here's Giles, who is so smart and has guided her for so long. But Giles, he's a given in her life and Professor Walsh is new and this is exactly I am sure how many parents feel and this is one of the points in the episode that I see differently and have seen differently at the various times that I have re-watched Buffy when I first saw the episode in 2000 I grasped how Giles felt how he's at loose ends but I didn't Grasp as much that generational issue between him and Buffy and her friends, but now I feel like I have a better sense of it. When I started teaching law students, I felt much closer to them. The age gap wasn't as great. So I felt a bit more in touch with where they were at, even in the job market. And now when I teach, I feel much older. They look much younger. Watching this now, seeing Giles, I thought, oh, God, that's how I would feel at a party with my students. At 4 minutes 36 seconds in, Spike is moving out of Xander's basement at last. And the scene starts with Xander complaining that Spike is taking too long and he owns nothing. What is there to move? And Spike grabs a radio and Xander says, that's my radio. And Spike says, and you're what? Shocked and disappointed? I'm evil. Anya asks him what kind of place he's looking for, and he says probably a crypt, something dark and dank, but not as dark and dank as this place. And Anya agrees the basement is pretty depressing. Anya grabs Xander's floor lamp and brings it over to Spike because she wants to give him something for his new place. I like this gesture with the floor lamp. It's another use of an object That shows something about Anya. She is learning socialization and human ways because when Xander says, what are you doing? She tells Xander that gifts are traditional. She read about it. Xander, though, tells her that's among friends. With bitter enemies, we don't give them my lamp. Spike claims he doesn't care. His crypt won't have electricity, which I know did not stop him from taking the radio. Xander, though, orders him out before he gets the Slayer to kick Spike out. And Spike is surprised that Buffy didn't stop by to do that. And Xander says, well, she has an appointment with someone who's actually still scary. And we cut to Buffy sitting in a chair in front of Professor Walsh, and Riley stands to one side. Professor Walsh is intrigued that Buffy is the Slayer and goes on, And to think we thought you were a myth. And Buffy responds, Well, you were myth-taken one of my favorite puns in the show. The professor now says she understands why Buffy's work wasn't up to her potential, that Buffy's efforts were focused elsewhere and they have the same goal, the initiative and Buffy, only their methods differ. And Walsh says, We use the latest in scientific technology and state-of-the-art weaponry, and you, if I understand correctly, poke them with a sharp stick. And Buffy responds... Well, it's more effective than it sounds. And Walsh says she has no doubt and she's working on getting Buffy clearance. She's sure they can learn a lot from each other. I enjoy this exchange because while that comment about latest scientific technology versus poke them with a sharp stick, if the line were delivered differently, it could be condescending. It doesn't feel that way. To me, Professor Walsh seems to be simply making an observation and I feel that when she says she has no doubt about it working, she really means it. There is an atmosphere of respect here. Professor Walsh tells her with great pride that Agent Finn alone has killed or captured 17 hostiles. And I wonder, is it relevant that Spike is hostile 17? Did Riley capture all the hostiles? Buffy responds, oh, wow, I mean, that's... 17 professor walsh says what about you how many hostiles would you say you've slain buffy hesitates glances sideways at riley and then looks back at walsh and we cut in the next scene giles is dusting his books and one catches his attention he opens it reads a bit aloud about a third new moon counts on his fingers and says oh crap We then cut to Giles on the phone telling Willow he can't wait for Buffy. The demon prince will rise tonight. And Giles is gathering supplies as he talks. So this is one of the cuts I mentioned where we avoid exposition by just going from Giles reading this. We know there's something about timing and he goes right to Willow. He's obviously already told her a bit of the background on what is about to happen, and he's looking for Buffy. So we avoid Giles repeating what we just saw. We also leave some space for him to fill in a few of the blanks in a later scene. Giles now says, well, where is she exactly? And we have another nice cut to Riley and Buffy walking outside. So we know the meeting with Walsh is done. We didn't have to see all of it. We got a very good sense of what would have happened after that question. And Riley says, wow. Buffy tells him Those are her best stories. She didn't tell him the Buffy breaks her butt stories. Riley is looking a bit glum, and he goes through the different things she did, including that she drowned, just saying bits and pieces so we're not reiterating all the stories that we as the audience have already seen. Buffy tries to downplay it, saying it's no big, really. And then she says, hey, who wants ice cream? Riley shakes his head, looking very discouraged, and he tells her that when he saw her stop the world from ending, quote, I just assumed that was a big week for you, turns out I suddenly find myself needing to know the plural of apocalypse, unquote. She tries to reassure him, saying if he'd been fighting since he was 15 and Riley says 15 and Buffy says, I know, wow. This is another exchange that I have seen differently in the different times I watched it, though less, I think, because of anything going on in my life and more because it is written so that you can take it several ways. Buffy spends all this time downplaying herself and her skills, which I read as trying to make Riley feel better. This time around, I couldn't help contrasting it with Angel. Buffy never had to downplay herself or undersell herself with Angel, which is a very strong contrast. To the last episode, Doomed, where Buffy worried that a relationship with Riley would be too much like Angel. She feared it would end badly. She didn't want to get involved with someone she fought demons with. But now we see in some ways it is not enough like Angel. And I wonder if that is purposeful on the part of the writers, beyond the idea that, yes, there are pluses and minuses in any relationship in real life or in fiction, if it is also a very deliberate choice to make this a different kind of relationship so that as we bring in the new Buffy boyfriend, he is not an angel repeat. There are different issues here. The other way I read this differently now is I always saw this as Riley is so insecure, Buffy has to prop him up. But last week, I commented on Will Riley apologize for making light of Buffy's life experience, criticizing her for a doom and gloom attitude, doing the turn the frown upside down thing, when he really knew nothing about what she had been through. He didn't know that she had died. And while he never says the word, I'm sorry here, which I had wanted to hear, it's possible he said it in the part of the Seem we didn't see also his going on about all these different things she did might be a little bit less about the insecurity it might also be driven by this is his way of acknowledging hey I knew nothing about your life I was saying all these things before and I didn't know anything so that kind of makes me happier with Riley a little more hopeful for their relationship But Riley then goes on and says the girls he grew up with could definitely hold their own. But he says, I'm not even sure I could take you. And Buffy says, that all depends on your meaning. The fact that this is what the scene ends on tells us this really bugs Riley. He is really uncomfortable with this idea that Buffy is stronger than him and most likely a better fighter. Buffy turns it around and she is flirtatious with it, which I see as her making the point that's not what a relationship is about. It, it doesn't have to focus on who can fight better. We switch to Giles. He is knocking on Professor Walsh's door. He knocks and goes right in and says, Professor Walsh, I presume. And he doesn't introduce himself. He just starts talking about how she's hard to find. And he wandered the halls, which are like a labyrinth. And Professor Walsh says, can I help you with something, mister? And now he introduces himself, shakes her hand, and says he's looking for Buffy Summers. He's a friend. The professor says Buffy's not there, and she's putting away files while she's talking. Giles tells her that Buffy's been very influenced by her course and quotes her quite often. Often, And Giles gives this this little laugh and says, sometimes she sounds a bit like an introductory textbook herself. And Professor Walsh says, I don't lecture from a textbook. But she's glad that Buffy's inspired. Buffy is bright and has only been lacking encouragement in academic settings. Giles has been looking over Walsh's diplomas on the wall as she talks. Now he turns to her and sits on her credenza, uninvited, and says he thinks it's best to let young people find their own strengths. If you lead a child by the hand, they never find their own footing, Walsh says. And if it's true about hiking, ergo, it must be true about life. This is the first time I feel like she is getting sarcastic. Giles responds, it's just that Buffy's not a typical student. And he says, quote, once you get to know her, she's a very unique girl. I hope you're not going to push her, close quote. And Professor Walsh says, I think I do know her, and I have found her to be a unique woman. Giles responds, woman, of course. How wrong of me to use my own word. have some great listener comments on YouTube from Raven Dark Author on the episode The Initiative where I was querying why is Buffy so clumsy at the point where Buffy can't get the ice cream maker to work or the yogurt maker to work and it's sort of that rom-com trope. So Raven Dark author said throughout the Buffy Riley storyline, they've had this ongoing feel of a secret identity double life thing. Riley has a double life as a military guy in the initiative and as a student or a TA. And Buffy has one as a slayer and a normal girl. And Raven Dark author goes on to point out the 1980s version of Superman with Christopher Reeve, where Clark Kent is played as a bumbling oaf who is clumsy, which helps deflect attention from the hints that he's Superman. And Buffy's behavior is reminiscent of Clark Kent. And I I think that makes a lot of sense, especially in the context of that one episode, since we don't see that otherwise. But that whole episode is about the double identity that both Riley and Buffy have and don't know about each other. So I love this idea that we are playing off the Clark Kent Superman double identity idea. As to Wilde at heart, relating to my comment that I felt Willow needed to be doing a little bit more in the climax, that it felt flat that it it is really her story, and yet she is not that active in that climax. Raven Dark author had a great suggestion When Veruca hits Willow and is taunting her, Willow fights back with magic, perhaps using mystical power to shove her away or throw her against a wall or some other form of self-defense. The rest of the story would still work because Veruca could still get up and try to attack her, meaning Willow. So when Oz comes in, he still has to save her, again, meaning Willow. I think that would be a great way to just add a little to that climax. As to pangs, Raven Dark author said, referring to your mentioning how the episode doesn't clear up the thematic question as to how to deal with past wrongs, I always saw that the episode doesn't answer the question because there is no answer. It's meant to underscore that there is no easy way to deal with a situation like Hoose's issue. It highlights something that is true to life, that this kind of situation has no satisfying answer. The show leaves it unresolved because that's how real life is. I think that is absolutely right. Thank you so much for those comments. If you would like to comment... On any of the Buffy episodes or any of the podcast episodes, I would love to hear your thoughts. You can comment on YouTube on my website, lisalily.com slash Buffy story, where you will find all the podcast episodes on Twitter at Lisa M. Lily, L-I-S-A, M is in Marie, L-I-L-L-Y, or on the Buffy in the Art of Story Facebook page. This scene is the main one that I have seen so differently over the years. When I first saw it, I was completely team Giles. Because I so felt for Giles, he has been feeling so hurt and left out. He is jealous of Professor Walsh, especially given Buffy's comment about her being absolutely the smartest person. And I felt, oh, Maggie Walsh is is so sarcastic with him. I felt completely that she was being unfair to him. Years later, discussing it in a Buffy discussion group, one of the women who was you know, maybe 10, 10, 15 years younger than me, and and probably more aware of these dynamics that I had simply grown up with and almost didn't didn't see because I was so used to them, pointed out that Giles just walks in the office, doesn't introduce himself, starts talking like Walsh should just know who he is or he has every right to just come in and interrupt her, sits on her credenza, taking up her space, and he starts pretty early belittling her in the backhanded compliment. Buffy quotes her quite often, but says, sounds like an introductory textbook. And if I were Walsh, I'd be irritated by that. And now I look at Walsh and say, well, she did a pretty measured response. She just said, I don't lecture from a textbook. And then he's lecturing her about how you should teach students. And he said he was the high school librarian. She is a university professor. Why does he think he's the one to tell her how to handle her class. In the end, of course, I love Giles. And I get that he is speaking from a place of hurt and jealousy. But I did see it so much differently when I was more aware of these kinds of dynamics that men often do and did in the workplace. His comment about girl versus calling Buffy a woman, I enjoy that because there are so many layers there. I completely get Giles saying girl. For one thing, it fits with what I've talked about before, that he is always drawn a clear line between himself and Buffy and her friends, not in the sense of, oh, I'm so much more important than you, but in the sense of mentor students. So there's never any line crossing. There's never any creepiness about Giles hanging around with these young people all the time or having this close relationship with Buffy. So makes sense that Giles would call her a girl, not to mention when he met her, she was 15. It wouldn't be unusual to call her a girl. I get it that Giles says this and his irritation that while she's clearly at this point, she's definitely tweaking him by specifically saying woman, at the same time, I think that is what Walsh would say. I think this is how she thinks of her students and specifically of Buffy. Now Walsh goes on to say that Buffy is very self-reliant and independent. Giles jumps in to say that's his point. But the professor continues that that can be bad. It can be unhealthy to take on adult roles too early. And she goes on, what I suspect I'm seeing is a reaction to the absence of a male role model. Giles makes this great face of distress and irritation and says, absence. Walsh goes on that Buffy clearly lacks a strong father figure. Giles is speechless. He opens and shuts his mouth. And Walsh says, she's sorry she has things to do. But she'll tell Buffy her friend is looking for her. So we end on another sore note, the suggestion that Giles doesn't have anything to do. At 11 minutes, six seconds in... We cut to the cemetery at night. Giles, Willow, and Xander are heading for a mausoleum. Willow queries whether they're too late. The demon prince was supposed to rise at sunset, and Giles blames it on having to look for Buffy and do battle with Fat Herodin. Xander, though, points out that Giles got lost on campus afterward, which took up some time. This, too, is very metaphorical. Giles mentioning having trouble finding Professor Walsh's office, getting lost on campus. Giles, is lost in this new world of buffy's now he says never mind he'll just handle it himself he's vanquished a few demons in his time without buffy though he agrees they may be too late and he expects carnage everywhere when he opens the door to the mausoleum though it looks very neat and clean he says they've had a bit of luck It hasn't happened yet. So now we are reaching the one-quarter turn or twist in the episode. Usually this comes about 25% through, which is why I call it that. It is the first major plot turn, and it should come from outside the protagonist, spin the story in a new direction, and raise the stakes. We see all these things happening. After Giles has said, oh, it hasn't happened yet, Willow says, or it has that too clean look, like the initiative guys were there and cleaned up. And Giles is saying, who? And Xander offhandedly refers to Riley and his guys. Willow says, right, they read otherworldly hotspots. And Giles tells them to stop. What is the initiative? And what on earth does it have to do with Buffy's new boyfriend? The mausoleum is dark. Giles has a flashlight, and he shines it at them as he's asking them. This to this use of this object is metaphorical because Giles behind the flashlight is in the dark. Willow says, you know, I'm sure you know, Riley's one of the commandos. And poor Jehiel says, well, that's marvelous, isn't it? And goes on about how he has spent weeks searching for scraps of information about these mysterious demon hunters. And he says, and no one bothers to tell me that Buffy's dating one of them. He demands to know who else knows. And Xander says Anya, but no one else, except Willow sheepishly says Spike. Sander tells him only the basic stuff. Riley's a commando, Professor Walsh is in charge. And Giles says, Professor Walsh, that fishwife? So I had to look up these names that Giles is calling Professor Walsh. I, I had the feel for what they meant, but I wanted to see if I had the connotations correct. So I looked on dictionary.com, and Harridan is a strict, bossy, or belligerent old woman. Fishwife is a coarse-mannered woman who is prone to shouting, and they give the example the screech of a fishwife. This is so striking because notice Walsh never shouted at Giles. She is not a belligerent old woman. I guess I could see where he might see her as belligerent, but she's very measured with him, and at most, there is understated sarcasm. Her voice is not shrieky, it's the voice of authority. And Giles was barging in and making these undermining comments. They're both sparring and kind of insulting each other in these underhanded ways. But for him to use these words, especially one that means strict bossy. It really hits that idea. Women take charge and they are bossy, where men are showing leadership qualities. And absolutely, this is what Giles is doing. And I have sympathy for him because I love Giles. Yet it shows this side of him where he is still a product of his time. His default way of defending himself or fighting back at what he sees as another authority figure interfering in a way or taking Buffy away from him is to characterize her and insult her in ways that are very specific to women. And it made me wonder, is it that this is a powerful woman he's talking to in outward status in our culture right now, she exceeds him? Is that particularly hard for him? Yes, Buffy is powerful, but she is still, he's the mentor, she's the mentee, so it's not an equal relationship. And this is where I wonder, has Giles spent way too much time with students, with the kids, so that he is uncomfortable relating to people on the same level of authority, Or I also buy that this is just Giles uh, really dealing badly with his feelings about where he is in life. Willow tries to say that Professor Walsh is not that bad. Giles gives her a look that stops her mid-sentence. She then says, well, the demon probably is a little late, but he tells them both they can go. He'll stay and wait a little longer, and he sinks down on a bench. Giles only waits a second and decides that he's kidding himself. Nothing is going to happen, and he gathers his things and leaves. The door slams, and Ethan, rain, emerges from the shadows and monologues, ending with, in fact, Ripper, old mate, I'd say something rather interesting was about to happen. After Ethan finishes speaking, Giles opens the door to the mausoleum and shines the flashlight on Ethan. At 13 minutes, 55 seconds in, we cut to a commercial. This is the culmination of the one-quarter twist. It spins the story in a completely new direction as Giles and Ethan start interacting. And it comes from outside Giles. It comes from Ethan. Giles now says to him, Ethan Rain, you have no idea how much thrashing you is going to improve my day. They fight, but Ethan tells Giles something's about to happen that's very bad for both of them. He begs Giles to listen, and we cut to Ethan and Giles at a pub getting beer. Giles is standoffish and skeptical, and Ethan comments on how they used to be such good friends, what happened, and Giles says their friendship fell apart when Ethan started to worship chaos. And Ethan says, wow, religious intolerance, sad that. The Chaos Worship is both a great quick reminder of what Ethan is like, which comes out through this minor conflict, And it foreshadows what he does to Giles. Ethan says something is harming demons and it's not the Slayer. He's heard phrases like pain as bright as steel. And also he's heard about something called 314 that scares the dark world most of all, the kind of scared that turns to angry. And the new outfit is blundering into places it doesn't belong. And he goes on, it's throwing the world out of balance. And that's way beyond chaos, mate. We cut to Buffy and Riley. They're sparring in the gym. Riley asks if she's holding back, and she asks if he is. He admits maybe a little, and she says maybe a little too. So they agree to go all out, and they fight harder for a moment. But then Buffy kicks Riley, and he flies across the gym. Fortunately, he lands on these thick mats on the floor and against the wall, and then one of them falls down on him. Buffy runs to him, says she didn't mean to. He sits up, but he's pretty winded. He claims he's not hurt. He looks hurt and irritated, but then he does smile a little bit. We cut back to Giles, who seems fairly drunk. And he says what gets him is for 20 years he's been fighting demons and they never noticed him. Then Maggie Walsh and the Nancy Ninjas show up and six months later the demons are pissing themselves in fear. Ethan asks who Maggie Walsh is. Giles says she's awful and then gets to what really bugs him. He says she said I was an absent male role model. Which does go to maybe it's Not so much that Maggie is a powerful woman, but that she is questioning his value to Buffy right when Giles is also questioning it. Giles is looking off to one side away from Ethan and says of himself that he's twice the man Maggie is. Ethan says, you know, you're really very attractive. Giles is a bit startled, looks over, but Ethan is writing down his name and phone number for the waitress. Giles laments that the world has passed him by. Ethan reassures Giles he won't have to worry about that anymore. He just slipped poison in Giles' drink. He'll be dead in an hour. We're 18 minutes, 39 seconds in. There's ominous music. Giles looks shocked. And then Ethan laughs and says, just kidding. They both laugh, and Giles says something about how bad he'll feel in the morning with all the drinking. Ethan says, relax, enjoy the night. We're just a couple of sorcerers. The night is still our time. And they toast to magic. At 19 minutes, 10 seconds in, we cut to Tara and Willow. They hold hands. There's a circle near them with a rose in it. And they're going to float the rose and pluck the petals off one by one testing synchronicity to see if their minds are attuned and Willow says and it should be very pretty. This cut is particularly symbolic because we go from Giles and Ethan lamenting being has-beens, and Ethan saying they're a couple of old sorcerers, the night is their time, to these two young women, it is like this transition. The rose does float, and it is pretty, but when they try to pluck the petals, it darts around the room, hurtling through the air, and finally lands with none of its petals. Neither of them know what did that, but Tara points out that the petals are off. A nice foreshadowing of things going wrong in just a moment. We are now at the midpoint of the episode. Here in a very strongly structured story, we usually see... The protagonist making a major commitment or suffering a major reversal. And we get the major reversal here for Giles, our protagonist, almost exactly at the midpoint, 21 minutes, 15 seconds in. A short update on what I have been working on. I mentioned recently a new nonfiction book about writer's block, which I finally have finished. It should be available for sale by the time you hear this. I just set it for pre-order. It is called Write On, How to Overcome Writer's Block So You Can Write Your Novel by L.M. Lilly. It'll be available on various ebook platforms and in a workbook edition. As you can guess from the title, it's specific to novelists because I personally always found it frustrating how many writing classes and writing books and writing prompts were geared generally to fiction, but didn't really fit well to novel writing. And as you can probably guess from this podcast, I prefer to write long. I'm not really a great short story person. And this carries through uh, to my law school experience as well. I was once in my office. I was working at the time as a paralegal, and I needed to use the office computer because, for some reason, mine at home didn't have the font we had to use. I was there till 2 a.m., and the last three hours were trying to get my assignment down to 15 pages. So I left at 2 a.m. The security guard was was very worried about me and was very nice, hung out with me while I found a cab. Other things I'm working on, I am about 12,000 words into my next novel, which I'm so excited about. It is the next in my QC Davis mystery series, which is female sleuth, traditional detective type of series. This one's especially challenging because Quill's backstory, which you get some hints of in the first book, so no spoilers here, is that her sister was murdered before Quill was born, right? Uh, Maybe a year before. And in this book, the fifth book, she is starting to look into that wanting to try to solve it so I'm both working with the plot of this book and starting out what I think will take two or three books to get through this running subplot about her sister And then a little personal update. Very excited. I'm fully vaccinated and I got to see my first ever baby great nephew. That was so wonderful. Plus, this week I saw one of my friends in person for the first time in over a year. She has some immune issues, so she had to be especially careful. Couldn't even do the dining outside that some of us have been doing when the weather allowed through the pandemic. So uh, we did get together in her place, and it was just so wonderful to see her outside at another friend with me, and I couldn't believe how great it felt just to hang out in person. So that has been a really nice thing, and, and I hope bodes well for things getting much better. It's morning. Giles, wearing pajama pants, clomps down the stairs and sees himself in a mirror. He has turned into a large demon with horns. He says no, gestures in surprise and frustration, and accidentally puts his hand through the wall and says Ethan. On the way down the stairs, he grabs the banister. It breaks off in his hand. The phone also breaks when he tries to use it. And when he attempts to put on his shirt, it rips apart because it's too small for him. He throws a blanket around his shoulders and stalks outside and the door falls off its hinges when he opens it. So this is more use of objects and props here to show Giles emotions, and his inability to control himself. It shows how angry he is. It also shows his vulnerability, that blanket around his shoulders, that symbol of security and often of childhood shows that mix of Giles' rage and inner fear. We then cut to another scene where objects, specifically food, are used to show a very different mood. In the cafeteria, Buffy is telling Willow how much she likes pancakes because they're stackable. And she has a little stack of pancakes and waffles because you can put stuff in the little holes if you want. And she pokes at Willow's waffles. Willow says, you should always have a new boyfriend. You're so much fun right now. Which is what's good about Riley being in Buffy's life. She does seem to have fun with him. Despite her concerns about kicking him across the gym, she's light and happy in a way that she never was and could never be with Angel. Buffy points out that she didn't hear Willow come in the night before, but Willow claims she was in the chem lab by herself all night. And she tells Buffy about the spell with the rose and says she felt a dark magic presence very powerful. Buffy says she'll tell Giles about the spell, but then says maybe she'll tell maggie willow though tells her to talk to giles he's feeling a little hurt and how come buffy didn't tell him about riley being a commando buffy says she didn't tell him at first because it was a secret from everyone and then once the cat was out of the bag she kind of forgot he didn't know which does fit last episode the rest of the gang found out through happenstance I could kind of see Buffy not quite realizing she didn't tell Giles because she has been so preoccupied with Riley. And now she tells Willow things are going well with him, but confides about kicking him across the room. Willow is sure Riley is fine with that and says, you can't walk around pretending you're less than you are. But Buffy admits that she still held back a little in the fight, which is a wonderful quick insight into the problem here that Buffy was still holding back and yet still hurt Riley. At 24 minutes, 42 seconds in, Giles goes to Xander's apartment to seek help. He's surprised to find Xander still asleep at 10.30 a.m. And when Xander opens his eyes, we see Giles from Xander's point of view. So it's this big demon. And although when we were in Giles' point of view, we heard him speaking English, Xander hears a demon language, Fioral, we find out. The scene is really well set up by those moments in Something Blue where all the demons came after Xander in the basement. So there's just no way that he's going to pause and realize this demon is not trying to hurt him. Xander's frightened. He throws things at Giles, and Giles, who thinks he's speaking English, doesn't get why Xander's doing this, but finally runs off. More great use of props because outside Giles tramps across a lawn filled with kids toys breaking some of them and a woman grabs her child and yells for someone to call nine one one. At 26 minutes 14 seconds in it's now dark and Buffy, Willow, and Xander go to Giles' apartment. So the timing here is a little weird. Giles specifically mentioned it being 10 30 in the morning when he tried to wake Xander up and now it's dark we don't know why it took Xander so long to get Buffy and in a moment Riley will talk about 911 calls and again seems odd why is this so many hours later just as Willow says Giles will know what it was meaning the demon they see that the door was ripped off the hinges and they see all the destruction in the apartment Buffy's hopeful the demon didn't hurt Giles because there's no blood, but Anya picks up his torn apart shirt and says, I think it ate him up. This is the beginning of them reconstructing a story of what happened from what they see around them. In some ways they are right and in some ways they're way off the mark, which is a really nice metaphor for life. We look around at what is in front of us and what we see maybe after the fact and try to weave it together into a story to make sense of it. But there are always going to be gaps and mistakes. Giles is trudging through the cemetery and Spike spots him and is really happy to see a demon and comments aloud to himself, a demon, that would be one of the things I can kill. Without turning around, Giles says, Spike, wonderful, a perfect end to a perfect day. Spike's expression turns to amazement, and he says, giles now giles is shocked that spike understands and asks if he's speaking english and spike tells him no he's speaking fioral which spike happens to speak and spike says you just come over all demon this morning and giles says yes and he needs spike's help to find ethan and reverse it spike responds and i'm supposed to just help out of the evilness of my heart Giles agrees to pay Spike $200. Spike's ready to go to Buffy, but Giles says no. He wants to deal with it himself. We cut to Xander. Looking through a book, he finds a drawing of the demon he saw as Riley appears in response to the 911 calls that the initiative monitors for possible non-human causes. Buffy's distraught. Riley says the initiative will help and will do whatever she needs, but Buffy wishes she knew what she needed. She keeps thinking she'll ask Giles. He'd know what to do. And Xander says, he'd be great right now. He'd find himself in a second. Nobody's cooler in a crisis. And of course, then we cut to Giles yelling at Spike that if he can't find third gear, he shouldn't try for third gear. Those two lines juxtaposed not only are a bridge between the scenes, which we often see, and funny, which we also often see, but they are quick exposition that reminds us that Giles usually is thoughtful, intellectual, measured, versus what he is now becoming, angry and violent, which interestingly, in a lot of ways, parallels the names he's been calling Professor Walsh. And maybe that was purposeful by the writers. He is becoming angry belligerent, and angry, and bossy. Giles does growl during the conversation. He doesn't like how he's feeling, rage, and a mindless need to destroy, and he refuses to become a monster because he looks like one. Yet in the middle of this, he tells Spike to pull over. Giles saw Professor Walsh walking on the street, and he jumps out of the car to growl and chase after her and scare her. And then he runs back to Spike. Xander and Willow are reading about the demon, and we are reaching the three-quarter point of the episode. Here is where we usually see another major plot turn that takes the story in a new direction. And here it also raises the stakes because Buffy asks how to kill the demon. Willow says you need a weapon made of silver. Riley gets a call that a demon attacked Professor Walsh and it got out of a small gray Citron. That is Giles' car. Buffy says a demon that steals a car has a purpose, but these demons don't seem to operate that way based on what they've read. And she asks Willow if her spell going wrong could have been caused by someone controlling the demon using magic. And Willow says... Yes. Now Buffy is hunting the demon, which is Giles, to kill it as Giles tries to track Ethan. So we have also this ticking time bomb. Will Giles get to Ethan and get turned back before Buffy kills him? Buffy tells Willow and Xander to stay at Giles' apartment in case there is a ransom demand. She then tells Riley they're going to the magic shop and Buffy grabs Giles' silver letter opener. At the pub, Spike asks the waitress about the two guys who were there, especially the one that gave her his phone number. The waitress says she threw out the number when she saw the guy was staying at that rat trap, the Sunnydale Motor Inn. So now they know where Ethan is. We cut back to Riley and Buffy. She breaks into the magic shop. He tells her she didn't have to do that. He has a master key to all all the shops. Buffy looks through credit card receipts and finds one with Ethan Rain's name on it. She's sure he must be the one behind this. Riley calls in a search for hotel reservations for Ethan. At 34 minutes, 45 seconds in, Riley tells Buffy Professor Walsh gave him specific orders. Once they located the demon, he's not supposed to bring Buffy along. Buffy doesn't care. She heads for the car anyway. The only way he'll stop her is if he calls in the troops. And she says, this demon did something to Giles and I'm going to kill it. Riley, looking concerned, follows her. We cut back to Spike and Giles. Spike says they're being followed. There's a bit of a car chase. Giles gets angrier and angrier and has more trouble controlling himself. Finally, he tells Spike, slow down, Giles will jump out and the military guys will keep following Spike. Spike's not too keen on that because these are the commandos that were after him, but Giles agrees to pay him another $100 and they do it. We cut to the motel, Giles breaks in, Ethan tries to soothe him saying, good Giles, Giles grabs him by the throat, Ethan is saying he can't undo it if Giles kills him, but Giles is now beyond reason and throws Ethan across the room. So we're now at the climax where the opposing forces have their final confrontation and resolve the main conflict. We're at 36 minutes, 46 seconds in. Buffy and Riley burst in. Ethan claims the demon killed Ripper and now is trying to kill Ethan. Buffy tells Riley not to let Ethan go and she confronts the demon, demanding to know what it did to Giles. Giles is kind of holding back. He has a little bit of control here, but Buffy throws the first punch and knocks him down. We cut to the military vehicles following Spike. He's having a blast evading them until he crashes the car. I don't believe we ever find out how spike gets out of that but somehow or other he does at 37 minutes 24 seconds in we're back with giles and buffy fighting ethan and riley are fighting as well ethan tells buffy she's only making the demon angry which is good advice but she doesn't listen i wonder why does ethan give this advice if he just let things play out, there's a good chance Buffy would kill Giles. So I think Ethan doesn't really want his old mate Ripper to die. He was just having a bit of what passes for fun for Ethan. Buffy finally gets on top of Giles, says, this is for Giles, brings the letter opener down as he says, who me? The first time I saw this, I'm pretty sure I, I thought she was killing Giles. And I think that is a result of the show establishing early on that no one is safe, that characters we have become invested in can be killed or leave the show as Oz did. And it, it creates that space to truly be worried However, this doesn't kill the demon. Giles' eyes widen as he gazes up at Buffy and now hers widen too and she says, "Oh god, Giles?" He grunts in the affirmative, somehow this works, something like "Ahoo, ahoo" in a very low tone. So that probably sounded more like, I don't know, a bird or something. But anyway, we get that he is saying yes. And Buffy gets it too, and she says his name again, and she's sorry, and please don't die. Now we hear Giles in English say, actually, I feel quite well, except for the rage. Buffy says, is this thing real silver of the letter opener, which is another key prop or object And this one is particularly important because Buffy really does try to kill the demon. And it goes along with that idea that the objects and the scene told Buffy and her friends a story. But parts of that story were wrong. We're now at the falling action where we tie up loose ends and resolve Subplots. Ethan says he really has to learn to do the damage and get out of town. It's the stay and gloat that gets him every time, which is pretty much true for Ethan and shows good self-awareness on his part. It's also a nice way to call out... What viewers might wonder about, like, why doesn't Ethan just leave? Giles is now wearing one of Ethan's shiny shirts, and he asks how Buffy knew it was him. And Buffy says, your eyes. You're the only person in the world that can look that annoyed with me. And they both laugh. Ethan, however, is not moved. And he taunts Buffy that she can't do anything to him. He's human. She can't kill him. And Ethan says, what's a slayer going to do to me? But two military guys walk in, and Riley places him under arrest by order of the U.S. military. This is a really nice moment of Buffy's and Riley's strengths and abilities being complementary. And it gives hope that a partnership can work. It does a lot to resolve the Buffy-Riley minor conflict about who is stronger because it shows what Riley can do that Buffy cannot and vice versa. Buffy thanks Riley for his help, saying if she'd gotten there even a few moments later, she would have never gotten Giles back because Giles would have killed Ethan. So Ethan couldn't have reversed the spell. Riley tells her she would have found a way and admiringly says she's really strong, like Spider Man strong, which makes me think I miss something about the Spider Man comics because I did not know Spider-Man was super strong. He also observes that Buffy's in charge, she makes the plan, she sticks to the plan, and no one is giving her orders. Buffy does point out that she doesn't stick to things like Spider-Man does, but she does explain all of this by saying, I'm the Slayer. Riley smiles and says, I like it. Buffy's pleased. Riley, half joking, half seriously, adds, give him another week and he'll take her down. This resolves Riley's character arc for the episode and that subplot. He is uncomfortable in the beginning with how much more experience Buffy has than he does. Clearly, the writers are having fun with a bit of a sexual experience metaphor there. Riley is is not so okay with that in the beginning, partly because maybe it makes him question How much he has done in his life? Has he done enough? But now he is coming to terms with where he is at in his life, with his own strengths, with what he brings both to the Buffy-Riley relationship, but also to them working together. I'm not sure about Riley's line about giving him time and he'll take her down. You can read it as just playful and fun. Now he's comfortable joking, or it could be foreshadowing, which I'll talk about when I get to spoilers. At 40 minutes, 49 seconds in, Giles, in his apartment, connects a new telephone, points out to Buffy that this ingenious speaking tube can be used to convey information that he needs to know. Buffy apologizes for not telling him about Riley. Giles is concerned about the initiative. He knows Ethan is not exactly a reliable source, but he's not sure that Ethan's wrong. And Buffy says she's not dating the Initiative. She's dating Riley, who is a good guy. Giles first denies he's saying any of this because he doesn't like Riley's boss, though he does hate her. But Buffy should keep her eyes open. They don't know what the initiative is about. We then cut to Riley having a similar conversation with Professor Walsh. She is not happy that the rules went out the window as soon as Buffy got involved. She says Buffy acts on instinct, has no discipline. Her loyalties are uncertain. This is a contrast to Giles. He is saying he doesn't know what the initiative is about, what its goals are, and Walsh is worried about Loyalty. I don't know if that's meant to be ominous because that fits a military operation where the boots on the ground are not supposed to be making the decisions or questioning orders. Riley reassures Professor Walsh that Buffy's good at what she does and adds, quote, she is the truest soul I've ever known, close quote. Walsh is not impressed. In fact, she says, Lord spare me college boys in love. After they part ways, Walsh goes into a restricted area and then through a second restricted door that is marked 314 and we cut to credits. That is it for the breakdown of this episode. Other than spoilers and foreshadowing, I hope you will stick around for that. Thank you to everyone for listening. I hope you will come back next time for The I in Team, where Buffy tries to work with the initiative. And we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing. This episode starts with Buffy downplaying herself, so Riley won't be intimidated. Their practice fight doubles down on that, with Buffy still holding back and yet sending Riley across the room. This may be an example of the series as a whole or the season as a whole, knowing more than any individual writer If the writers thought that this relationship would work out. Because to me, it just does not bode well and it suggests that Riley is going to continue to struggle with this and while there are other reasons were given for Riley eventually leaving Buffy there is always this undercurrent where he can't quite deal with her being the strong one and maybe not just the strong one with her sense of purpose which is interesting because Maggie Walsh here criticized Buffy's lack of discipline and yet Buffy does have discipline and when she doubles down on that in season five and so focuses on her mission at the very time that Riley is at loose ends and has lost his that becomes an issue that they just never can get past and this episode where Buffy's downplaying herself and then the criticisms of Maggie Walsh of Buffy, even though she admires her, the differences in how the initiative approaches things and Buffy and her friends approach things, and the issue of taking orders that Buffy does not take orders. All of those things set up what ultimately happens with Buffy and Riley and also set up next week where Professor Walsh turns on Buffy, concluding that she asks too many questions, cannot follow orders, and can't be trusted. And that is also foreshadowed by seeing 314 at the end of this episode, right after Giles has warned Buffy about the initiative. We know that Maggie is doing things that probably Riley does not know about because it's all in this restricted secret area. Walsh saying to Giles that independence and reliance, self-reliance can be bad, also foreshadows the problems in the next episode between her and Buffy. And of course, 3.14, though we don't see Adam here, foreshadows Adam that there is this project within the initiative that, as Ethan tells us, could throw the worlds out of balance. Giles, feeling like a has-been, foreshadows our later conflict in the Yoko Factor when Spike plays on Giles' insecurity and his feeling that Buffy does not need him. Spike goes right in for the kill in the Yoko Factor as a way to divide Buffy and her friends, and he knows just what to say, and that makes total sense because... Spike is good at observing people and understanding them. And his first thought is to do what makes sense in this episode, which is go to Buffy. Get Buffy's help. Find Ethan, turn Giles back. But Giles, despite that, that would make sense, does not want to go to Buffy. He's going to handle it himself. And that tells Spike a ton about where Giles and Buffy are. One last thought that is less foreshadowing and more of a parallel that I saw when I was commenting about how. We have Buffy's new boyfriend, but we don't just replace Angel. This isn't a new version of Angel. Riley is different in so many ways. And the underlying conflict is completely different. It's one she would have never had with Angel. In no universe was Angel intimidated by Buffy. Evil or good, he is sure of himself. He doesn't need Buffy to prop him up. Riley has different struggles. In season seven... We will see Kennedy as Willow's new girlfriend, another example of a very, very different character. Kennedy's personality is so different from Tara. Tara is warmly supportive. She is very sure of herself eventually, but when Willow first meets her, she's she's very shy. She is in the background, and as we get to know her and as she grows herself, she becomes a very strong person, whereas Kennedy is completely in your face. I hate to talk too much about her because we haven't got there, but I think it's fair to say in some ways she reads as a bit abrasive, and she knows it. She doesn't have a problem with that. But these are two very, very different personality types. So the show definitely does not want to just say, "Okay, we dropped in a new character just like the old one. That will fill this role in the character's life. And for that matter which I'm surprised I didn't think of first, we have Oz leaving and we have Tara becoming Willow's love interest. And that too, those are two very different characters, both very supportive of Willow and really there for her, but definitely not, okay, we'll just give Willow this new love interest that is just like the one who left. I do like that about the show. Obvious by now, I am not, Super excited about Riley, but I do like that the show went a very different way. And that makes it even more intriguing when Buffy becomes involved with Spike. And the show, nonetheless, does not do a repeat of the Angel story once more, despite that it's a vampire and eventually he will get a soul. The storylines are very, very different. So yet another thing I admire so much about the writing and directing in Buffy. So that is it for this episode. Thank you again for listening and a special thank you to patrons who support the show. I just added a new bonus at the $5 a month level. If you join, you will be able to get the ebook edition of Buffy and the Art of Stories, Season One Writing Better Fiction by Watching Buffy. As a bonus, you can subscribe on Patreon by going to lisalily.com slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, or you can go to patreon.com slash Lisa M. Lily. I finally got that Patreon feed fixed so that it matches my name, so you can find that there. And I hope you will come back next time for The I in Team, where Buffy joins the initiative and asks way too many questions for Professor Walsh. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman LLC, copyright 2021. All rights reserved.